This podcast is from the First Summer Foundation Breakfast Club Lecture of 2015, recorded on March 18th. Guest speaker is Deputy Chief Magistrate Mizulana Popovich. The topic is offenders with ABI in the Magistrate's Court, support services and sentencing considerations. Good morning everyone. Could I commence by very sincerely expressing my appreciation to the uh, traditional owners of this country for allowing us to meet here today. I pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people, their close neighbours, the Bunurong and the Tanurong, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, that's a, I don't say that lightly. Uh, it is something that uh, becomes more and more meaningful to me every time I make that statement. And uh, I have the great privilege of uh, as part of my portfolio duties of being the coordinating magistrate of the Koori Court for Melbourne. So I've the great privilege of having met very many uh, prominent elders and I pay my respects to Dr Alf Bamblett who passed away this weekend. Many of you may know of uh, Uncle Alf and he's a great loss to the community. I'm very worried because some of you guys have heard me speak before and you're probably going to be able to assess how much brain function I've lost uh, <laughs> over the past couple of decades. Uh, so please don't hold it against me, but if you think that you need to tell me something that I need to know, just tell me quietly later. Uh, I'm also very glad that you asked me to speak today. I thought I was persona non grata after the recent spate of uh, Herald Sun and um, other news media that's attributed to my lack of ability to make decisions. I think I'm the only judicial officer in history who's ever had their reason and uh, common sense com commented on by a prime minister, but there you go. Um, notwithstanding my clear deficiencies, you, I've been asked to come today. <laughs> and I, the, <laughs> I, I say nothing. Um, the, there was a huge amount of hate mail that came after that uh, uh, flurry in the newspapers. and I was protected from most of it, but my um, boss did send me this one because he thought I'd quite enjoy it. <laughs> I am afraid, madam, your ideological fanaticism has betrayed your adherence to Marxist, which was spelt M-A-R-K-X-I-S-T, <laughs> philosophies of destruction of the existing regime, and has gone just about overboard. You should excuse yourself immediately from public office, but like the good little communist subversive that you are, you will stay. <laughs> and it's signed, Just Kevin. <laughs> so there you go. We've I get lots of mail. Uh, I get mail from some of the punters who've come before me to tell me what's happened in their lives since they've um, uh, finished whatever program they've been on. Uh, I've had, I get lots of hate mail. Uh, the, my favourite postcard I ever received, and I regret that I didn't keep this, was somebody who commented that he was on a tram and uh, there was a disabled person on the tram with a dog and the conductor wanted to take the, take the dog away and said, get off the tram, you can't have the dog. And the fellow said, but Miss Popovich said that I could take my dog with me on the tram. 
And it's to my everlasting regret that Miss Popovich never said that, but I wish I had. <laughs> um, and it's interesting too, I get this mail often that tells me, talks about my appearance, a bit like Julia Gillard. Uh, we get commented on about our appearance all the time. So uh, I forgot to bring it, I meant to bring it, but uh, when I was dealing with a case involving Judy Moran, the main comment was that I was sitting up on the bench in my black dress and pearls. Now, how, how many men get commented on that they're sitting on the bench in their uh, in their black suit? It, it doesn't happen. But somebody somebody wrote to me in these terms: to Miss Yalana Popovich, Melbourne magistrate, dear Yalana, Y A L A N A, just a few lines in relation to your dress manner. You needn't always look so dowdy. You <laughs> You possess an inherent good heart and demeanour which should be reflected in your dress code, i.e. colours, etc. <laughs> and project just your, your self head and shoulders above the rest of your colleagues. Well, it's a bit hard when you're five foot three. <laughs> and remember, police don't always tell the truth. That's in, that's in bold. P.S. They don't have a patent right over the truth. A member of the legal fraternity. Now, I could go on, I could read you lots, but I won't, because that's actually probably more fun than what I've got to talk to you about. But um, I wanted, really did want to make this very interactive. I will be bobbing around a fair bit, but uh, I'm not sure what you'd like to know from me. So if, uh, if you've got questions, don't wait till the end. Ask, ask as I go along. And if you want, I'm happy to be steered the way you'd like the discussion to, to go. So. We are very, very fortunate in the Magistrates' Court. Um, so that, you know, I've been a magistrate for 25 years. I have, there's not probably no one else in the room that's as old as I am, but I've seen a huge societal change. So I started in the law maybe 40 years ago, well, 35, 35 years ago. And uh, in those days, I hardly, I was in a criminal practice and I hardly had any clients who were drug users. Uh, it was unusual to have a client who was a drug user. It was really unusual to have a female defendant. Very unusual. So, and I remember going out to the old um, Fairley prison and there were 10 women in there. Uh, and my client, one woman who was a drug user then. And so the complexity of the community just uh, it defies description really. And in fact, I found in the last five years, the, the complexity has probably escalated at an unprecedented rate. And that's probably mirror mirroring your experience. So traditionally, the courts have been very slow to adapt to societal change. And as a magistrate, when I commenced 25 years ago, and I was dealing with speeding case after speeding case, I'm now dealing with aggravated burglars, I'm dealing with horrific family violence. The, the landscape has just changed enormously. And it, what I can say is that when I started noticing the change, um, myself and my colleagues said, well, we're the ones who actually pick up on the trends. We pick up on the trends faster than anybody else because we're actually getting the concentrated result that the offending is the concentrated result of the increasing complexity. So we're actually able to pick up on that 
and we can speak till we're blue in the face with um, police about trends we can, or um, mental health services or drug services or politicians. Um, we, it's very hard for people to understand that we're the ones who are getting the concentrated uh, news about what the trends are and we can't actually influence policy very quickly to get things put in place. So what we've been very fortunate to be able to do is actually use the court to respond to societal complexities. Um, in, in, at least insofar as our programmatic response is concerned. So for example, everybody's grappling with ICE at the moment. We don't have a programmatic response yet for ICE, but we're trying very hard to get an idea of what the best practice is from around the world to see what we can do to adapt our programs to take into account the, this epidemic that's hit us now. So that's by way of simply introducing the way that we, the court has actually responded to the things that have changed. So um, we, the ABI phenomenon is something that struck us about 10 years ago, possibly a bit earlier than that, possibly the late 90s when the heroin epidemic was at its worst and we were actually getting quite a few young people who were at Royal Talbot uh, following um, drug overdoses. And that's when the, it clicked for us. So we did start to try and work out what would our response be to people that suffered ABI as well as all the other complex comorbidities that attach. Uh, again, that's just simply by way of uh, trying to explain the incremental way that the court responded to the societal issues as they emerged. Um, it, it, I must say that, um, to complement the court, that we are able to respond quickly. And Jess, who's one of our early ARC lawyers, now do you know what ARC is? It's the Assessment and Referral Court, which is basically our mental impairment court. Uh, Jess was one of our early lawyers there, probably the first lawyer, one of the first, second, yeah. So uh, when we designed, for example, that program, um, it got a bit hijacked away from us. We wanted to have a simpler program that would respond in, with procedural fairness to people with mental impairment. Our definition of mental impairment is very broad uh, and in fact it's defined in the Act for the, that particular mental health court uh, as any type of mental impairment. So that does include, men, uh, it could be anything. It could even be a, a very severe gambling addiction if it's coupled with post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. So when we first thought about that program, what we wanted was something that was a, a much lower level response to people with mental impairment that would provide a safe place, a comfortable place, uh, with some a level of understanding um, so that we could meet the needs of those people in a better way and work collaboratively with uh, trying to change the behaviours that were getting them before the court. Uh, the program has blossomed into something much bigger than that. It, it's now providing a, a clinical response and uh, lasts, some people are on the program for 12 months, some I mean, even a little longer than 12 months. But the, 
that was one of our responses to the burgeoning issue of mental health, uh, people with mental health issues coming before the courts. It's a drop in the ocean because we can only take a limited number of people. We do provide a fantastic service for that limited number of people, but uh, we're currently in the process of an evaluation. We're hoping to convince government to uh, stop the program being a pilot program, make it a, a definite program and expand it. So, oh, sorry, I'm all over the place. Any questions so far? Because I'm still doing lots of talking. Okay. So that's just one example of, of how we've responded. And um, I sit on the ARC list, but I'm not one of the regular ARC list magistrates. I've got too many fingers in too many other pies. But I've had some incredible success with ABI, uh, people with ABI on the ARC list. I can think of one young man in particular who was involved in some very serious and violent offending, uh, who developed an ABI following an assault. And he, we actually nurtured him to the point where he, by the end of the 12 months that he was on the program, he was able to establish a good relationship with a partner. Um, he re-established a relationship with his mother. His mother couldn't control him before and the, the relationship had completely disintegrated. He'd completed a TAFE course and was looking for a job. He also had pets. And I know this sounds stupid, but he had some pets that he was looking after beautifully and they were actually assisting him with his self-esteem issues. So in the beginning, I had a very violent, unhappy, troubled young man. By the end, I had a functioning young man who was ready for the workforce re-establish, was able to re-establish relationships and keep relationships and was able to care for other people other than, and other things other than himself. So, uh, and that's not what the magistrate does, that's what the team does and what you people in the field are offering somebody like that. But we just, just have the ability to put it together and we have the judicial imprimatur to put that extra layer of motivation and restriction on people, which seems to work so well. Um, I'm assuming that you have a level of understanding of therapeutic jurisprudence, and if you don't, if you want me to explain that, we certainly, you'd like me to explain therapeutic jurisprudence? Okay. So this little black duck is big on therapeutic jurisprudence. Uh, what it's, a, it's a flash term for something very commonsensical, which is that We've taken, we believe, those of us who are adherents to therapeutic jurisprudence, and there is now a huge body of work about it, a huge body of literature and research, that the people coming before courts are often at a crisis point in their lives because they've come to the attention of the criminal justice system and they've got a, it, I hate to use the term crossroads, I hear it every day in court, 15,000 times a day I hear, your, your Honour, he's at the crossroads. I actually said yesterday, hey, I've been to the crossroads and back. He's been to the, he's been to the cross, but hallelujah, Lord. Um, devil, devil saw him coming, took him at the crossroads. Uh, so anyway, we do get these people who are, at, who are at a crisis point, and it's a really good time, we've noticed, to start to work with people, to, to start that behaviour change process. But there's something quite magical about an authority figure like a judge or magistrate taking a 
firm interest in a person's uh, life and their offending and how to change their, how to help them engage in behaviour change so that they're, uh, they, they're not offending anymore. Now, it all sounds a bit touchy-feely, but it's actually about how, about how we make our community safer. If we don't put some measures in, these people just continue offending. Eventually they stop, but generally off they, there's a lot of mayhem they create in the community before they stop offending. So we use a process of uh, continually getting people to come back before us. We try to engage in motivational interviewing, and I'm not great at that because I'm not a psychologist, that's what you guys do, but I do my best to uh, use a mixture of my authority but my caring to assist in the behaviour change process. It doesn't work for every person that comes before us. Many people, as you know, they're nowhere near ready to change on the change cycle, uh, but some people respond extremely well. Our research has shown, in fact, uh, on one of our other programs that we've uh, been involved in, that it's our men over 40 who are our absolute best customers. They're sick of it, absolutely sick of it. And it's actually the men over 40 that are our biggest group with ABI, as you, which probably mirrors your experience mm -hmm. as well. Um, the women are, unless we get them very young, the, the women are useless. They cannot, just cannot get motivated to change. And I, and I understand all the complicated social reasons why that's the case. But it, it's very distressing to see women in a cycle of abuse, substance abuse, offending, abuse, substance abuse, offending. It just goes on and on. And does that mirror your experience too? Yeah, no, not really. I don't know. But um, so, sorry, I'm weaving all over the, over the place. But the men over 40 uh, seem to respond the best to our programs. Um, and that's another thing that's different from court, between court and other programs that might be offered in the general community because the court, with most of our programs, we don't expect people to tell us whether they're guilty or not guilty. We're actually working at the, at the problem or why the person's presenting in the criminal justice system. We don't care whether there's an outcome at the end that says they're guilty or not guilty. Uh, that's actually quite radical. Everybody else, it, most places in the world think that to get services from a court, you should actually acknowledge your guilt. But we don't operate that way. We operate on the basis that we'll provide you with the, with the services that are going to assist you with your behaviour change and worry about the court process later. On the ARC list, the mental health list, there is a, re a legislative requirement that there's a plea of guilty, but we actually don't worry about that till towards the end, do we, Jess? Yeah. yeah. We, we nurture people through, and yeah. most people end up pleading guilty. There's very few people <coughs> who don't acknowledge their guilt along the process. But it doesn't, that's, that's not the point. The point is, again, it's a therapeutic jurisprudence principle that what we're actually treating is the issues that are bringing them toward to the to the attention of the criminal justice system not so much the outcome though from a um, 
from my perspective, it makes a big difference in, at the end of the process when I am sentencing, uh, what they've actually managed to do with the programs that we've put in place. Yep. Sounds very interesting. Um, so you, you as the magistrate or the, the people involved with that program from the legal profession are providing most of that input or are you able to pull in additional okay. support to that? So um, the actual concept of therapeutic jurisprudence is usually that judicial monitoring and the, the way that the, uh, law, the magistrate or judge interacts with the offender, alleged offender. I'll say offender. I won't be politically correct. I'll just say offender. Um, so what happens at our court, for example, is we do have a number of different programs. So we can call upon our programs to assist as well. But uh, I exercise therapeutic jurisprudence in virtually every case that I deal with. For example, I try to engage in restorative justice practices with victims uh, and in our family violence uh, jurisdiction. In all our jurisdictions, I think the role of the judicial officers really important about setting the tone and uh, starting that behaviour change process all through the whole court system. So the, the very basic aspect of therapeutic jurisprudence is that role that the judge or magistrate is involved in, or the judicial officers involved in. What we do at our court, and I'm just getting right back to what our programmatic response is and how we've developed our responses, is that um, when, when we see an issue becoming live, for example, in the 90s, the heroin issues, we actually put in place a program that addressed heroin abuse. Uh, and what we got the, I wish we still had this, but we don't anymore. We got the police to bail people to the court the next day and they would have an immediate assessment. We had an arrangement with DHS that we could get immediate uh, assessment through AXOCOATS and immediate referral to a drug treatment agency. So in the late 90s, we had all these service agreements. With this little court just managed to do all this without terribly many bureaucrats and with very little money. We got some, we got some um, seed money from Crime Prevention Fund, uh, which we used towards an evaluation. Um, but we somehow managed to negotiate this ourselves and we managed to somehow get some government agencies interested in what we were doing. We're now looking at trying to reinstitute that model on a community basis. Um, so we're talking with... Uh, service providers about perhaps some pilots in some country areas about getting re immediate referrals using the court as the uh, as the stick I guess the the overall uh, controller and the uh, discipline provider but we're aiming what we're looking at is seeing whether we can get lo a local response to the ice situation but so back in the 90s we had this fantastic program where the coppers actually referred people immediately to us. We immediately had them assessed as for suitability on our program and then got them very quick. We had 48 hour turnaround uh, for drug and alcohol services. Um, that of course couldn't be sustained and the demand was too great but this, the services weren't there and on the outside services weren't there and we just couldn't 
sustain that. We also had trouble getting the police at that point, so we're talking 15 years ago. We had the police, the police were a bit slow with understanding what we were trying to do. Again, I think the landscape's changed because we've worked so hard at pushing this intervention stuff early, um, the police are slowly coming on board, but then you get 2,000 new recruits and they're all 20 and they've got no life experience and they just want to see every crook behind bars. So we end up again having to try and re-educate the police in the fact that the court will be there, that we're not, it's not some kind of Mickey Mouse response, it's actually trying to change people's lives. We're actually trying to stop the offending and make the communities safer. Yeah, sure. Can you tell me how the community corrections services relates to what you're describing? Is it a, a separate entity? It's or a completely it a... separate entity. Oh, okay. That's post-sentence. And I'll, I will try, sorry, I've got to start Thank to speed up and I'll, expl I'll explain that in just a moment. So what we do now, we have this program called the KISP program and it has a very significant ABI component. So I'll keep trying to get back to your field, guys. Um, so we are probably the biggest uh, user of neuropsych report writing in the state. We, um, the latest figure I got was that we commission 100 reports. I don't think that's right. I think it's closer to 150 reports annually. Corrections commission between five and 15 reports. And we are dealing, I'm talking about over three sites, Melbourne, Latrobe Valley and Sunshine. We, as part of our KISS program, which I'll explain in just a minute, but just because I'm on a roll now to talk to you about ABI, we actually have officers with, embedded in our court as part of our KISS program who identify whether or not they think somebody might have an, uh, an ABI and it's after that initial assessment that we refer to a neuropsych for a neuropsych assessment. Um, and I we do something that I don't think anybody else does, um, and it's partially in response. So are you still here, Emma? Yes. Yeah, this is all about me, okay, it's all about me. Um, that I got really upset reading the neuropsych <coughs> assessments and going, oh, God, this person's got a uh, really significant um, brain loss and uh, function, their cognitive impairment's really significant, and oh, boy, this is terrible. And I'd be going, oh, shit, I don't want to be the one who tells the person down there how significantly impaired they are. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, has anyone explained to you what's in this report? And they'd go, oh, no, no. So what we do now is we do, we have the neuros. Who does, does anyone, anyone here do our reports for KISP? No? So anyway, what we do is we ask the neuropsych who's, uh, completed the report to have a further meeting with the person who they've assessed and go through what their findings are. And I don't think anybody else does that. So um, we, I'm very, that, that is something I'm very proud of, that we've actually, we, we're prepared to invest the money not, in, not only into the neuropsych reports but into the follow-up so just to explain very quickly what the KISS program is, and we'll, I'll perhaps work, walk you through it. Uh, oh, I probably put three people on KISS yesterday, so all I've got to do is think of somebody I dealt with yesterday. But KISP is um, a, a multidisciplinary program 
where we actually have most of the people embedded in the court. So uh, somebody's in custody, they present with homelessness, mental health issues, drug, is drug issues. Um, we'll get that person assessed by one of our KISP clinicians. We'll uh, try to match them with uh, a, a clinician with expertise in their primary presenting problem. Generally, it's drugs or alcohol. And that person will assess them. Then I get a report that, so I've got, so Joe Block, Tom's in custody. He has just committed uh, an armed robbery on McDonald's with two others yesterday. You did this, truly. This is, this is what happened to me. That was what happened before me yesterday. Actually, it was McDonald's. And uh, yeah, very young offender, 22, and um, presents with a whole lot of complex needs. Um, does have somewhere to live because he lives with mum, but often our people don't have anywhere to live. Uh, I'll say too big a risk to, for the rest of you guys in the community to have to have this person out of custody while we wait to determine whether or not they're guilty of the offence. We'll, uh, because of the drug issues, the, the person who assesses Tom will actually be uh, somebody who's experienced in drug and alcohol. That I then get a report back that says, um, Tom will be living with his mum and dad. Tom has drug and drug issues. Um, I've uh, predominantly cannabis and ice and a little bit of, uh, he's a poly drug user, he uses a bit of heroin too. So I've arranged for him to go and see ex-doctor at two o'clock tomorrow and then he is linked to ex-chemist to collect the bup which we think, or the suboxone which we think will be prescribed by the practitioner. The practitioner will also look to see whether he has underlying mental health issues and will make a referral to a uh, psychologist under the mental health care, will undertake a mental health care plan. So get all of this written down. Uh, Tom also uh, hasn't worked for a while and he's de-skilled, so we've referred him to work skills to get his skills back up. He's got an appointment at X time. Although Tom lives with mum, that's a bit of a problematic relationship, so we've referred him to the home ground. We have an appointment at this time to home ground to see if we can start the process of helping him look for somewhere else to live. So that's my report that comes and I go, okay, so that addresses issues. Uh, oh, and also we're referring him to AXO Coats so he can have counselling for his drug and alcohol issues. So I have this complete plan that tells me bang, 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 what's in place for this for Tom. And I can at that point go, okay, great, that's re significantly reduced the risk that he poses to the community. Um, I'll release him on bail on a number of conditions that will essentially mirror what's already in the, in the report, but also um, we'll stipulate he's got to live at mum's, but if he wants to leave that address to come and see me and I'll change his address, all that sort of stuff. So, yep. Um, if it's identified that the offender has cognitive impairments yep. um, as a result of a brain injury, are they linked into rehabilitation services as yes. part of that? Process. All of that. So, so who provides Okay, that? so what I'll get on my initial report is, say, that report that I've got there. Then he comes to see me every month. So Tom and I start to develop quite a good rapport. And he knows he's going to see me 
and I'm going to be asking him if he's going to his appointments and he doesn't want to disappoint me because that nice Miss Popovich, she really wants me to do well. So I'm going to really do my best to try and not use ice the minute I get out of, uh, out of prison. Uh, I'll wait for a day or two. And, uh, but so he comes and I don't expect he's going to stop using ice like that. I'd love, I'd love that to be real life. But again, I'm, I'm keeping it real. I know these people don't have, um, that they, they've got really great intentions in custody because they don't want to be there and they want to change their lives. And once they get back to their real life, uh, it's very hard for them not to fall straight back into the same old patterns that they used to have and hang out with the same old people they used to have. So I guess that's one of the other, I'm hoping that you're getting a sense that we magistrates, we actually keep it real. We actually understand what happens out there a fair amount. So anyway, oh, just getting back to that. So he will, Tom will now also develop an excellent rapport with his uh, KISP clinician. And his cl KISP clinician's gonna go, whoops, I detect, I, I think I detect an ABI here. So his KISP clinician will then refer him to and uh, the person to ch our, who's embedded in our organisation to see whether they think that he has got an ABI. Uh, he or she will say, look, I think, I think a, a, a full neuropsych assessment's warranted. And then when, when, once we've got that back, I'll, so I'll get a report next month that says, we've, uh, Tom's been doing tolerably well on his, on his uh, program. He, he self-reports that he's used ice twice and, and I, I go, yes, hallelujah, he's telling us that he's using ice. So we can address that. Not pretend, he's not sugarcoating. Um, he's, he's on his Suboxone, he's, uh, ha has um, stopped heroin use but he still uses cannabis at night to go to sleep. Uh, we're working on strategies around that. Um, he has been going to his drug counselling. He um, He's been to see his home ground worker. They can't actually help him uh, get somewhere because his emergency accommodation's too, too scarce and because he's living with mum, um, he's not seen as having an emergency. But we're working to... We've put him on the waiting lists for all sorts of stuff. So I get this great report and I'll have the report about... And we've identified that he's likely to have a, a neurological deficit. So we've referred him to the psychologist. And then... The next month I'll get another report that tells me how he's going and I'll get uh, a copy of the neuropsych assessment and the recommendations. And then our KISP officer uh, who's been working with Tom will um, see what they can do about getting the case management uh, into place around the neuropsych. But you all know, as I'm not telling you how to suck eggs, that as much as we can try to link people in with the appropriate services, they're very Sometimes there's a big waiting list. Uh, I think the waiting lists have been brought in a little bit, but we've had periods where we've had to wait two years to get a proper case management system around people. So it is part of the process. And then this, this thing goes on for four months. Do you, are you guys been watching this thing that I did do where I released the bloke where the Herald Sun thinks I did the worst thing in the world? I don't know if you guys have been watching that with interest because that... The Herald Sun seems to have dropped off since he's not re-offended and he's doing really well on KISP. Um, well, he has done absolutely everything he's been asked to do so far. I, I hope he doesn't make an idiot of me and do something stupid soon. But at the moment, 
he's complied with every aspect of his KISP program. So KISP has got, within our court, we've got the drug and alcohol um, experts that can be the case managers. We've got some mental health support through forensic care. We also have uh, people with expertise in intellectual disability, the ABI people. We have a contract with Home Grounds, so Home Grounds embedded at the court too, so we can make the appointments there. We have a financial counsellor that comes every Thursday. I can't remember everything else we've got, but what we and what we don't have, we've got brokerage funds to uh, purchase the service. So we've got some psychologists that we actually purchase the service for. Yep. It's very rarely just one issue. It's very, very rarely just one issue. Uh, we did it in 2009. We had our first evaluation, and we discovered that most, that about 70% of people presented with um, drug and alcohol issues. Uh, but there, were, oh, I can actually. One of the things I, I haven't brought a whole lot of paper today because I was interested to know what you guys wanted to know from me but I can actually provide somebody with our evaluation that shows the breakdown of the, co of the comorbidities. Mm -hmm. uh, Roughly how many ABIs do we have? 10%. 10% okay. uh, um, with significant cognitive impairment. And 10% on the ARC program have uh, present with um, ABI. So it's a significant number. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about a little bit of cognitive impairment, I'm talking about fairly significant cognitive impairment. So does that help with how KISP works? So who asked me the question about the services? You did. So um, um, the aim of KISP is that it's only a four-month program. It's not going to solve people's lives for them, but it, it, it endeavours to actually connect people with the services to help them navigate the service system because we all know how difficult it is to navigate that. But once we've actually made the linkages, at the end of KISP, our hope is that they'll maintain their links with whoever we've linked them up with. Yeah? What do um, KISP and ARC stand for? OK. KISP is Court Integrated Services Program. And just to make life even harder for you, we've got a CROP as well. <laughs> CROP is the outreach service that now is funded by corrections in the prisons to link people up with KISP from the prisons, which in reaching to the prison? In, they're embedded in the prison and then they, they conduct the assessments on behalf of KISP and if the person gets bail, they're monitored by KISP. So, yep. Have you got any fast tracking to try and access interpreters for that service? Because my experience is dealing with the people who don't have proper English, you can't really do a lot of that. Oh, no, we do. We have uh, interpreters. Have long yeah. waits to get interpreters, especially for these Urdu and those sort of odd Oh, languages. no, we get... I've not... We've no, no problem with that because the court arranges it. The court arranges to have the, uh, the interpreters at, at all the appointments, at least at court, and I'm sure that they arrange for them in the as part of the service delivery as well. Now, you had a question. Um, just when you talk about the KISP 
clinicians, how they're involved, they might be alerted, become alerted to the fact that somebody has an ABR. Mm. What sort of professional background do those clinicians have? They're not neuropsychs. No, 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 they're not neuropsychs. And in, and our, uh, our... Emma, you might be able to help me with this. The person who does the, the actual identification is, is somebody who's worked in ABI but is not a neuropsych. We, we'd love... If I had the money, I would actually have psychologists and neuropsychs at the court and psychiatrists. I'd actually have them as part of the program. We don't have the money for that, but we, we are able to outsource. But we do have uh, somebody with... I don't know what her professional qualifications are. I can't tell you off the top of my head, but I can find out. But she is somebody who's very experienced in ABI. Who does so, a health professional. Absolutely a health professional. Yeah. yeah. So was there... Yep, yeah, up the back. Um, is this some, uh, as particular part of the court that people have to be channelled into? Or do they get these services just because uh, they appear in... They, you, might, you might have an offender yeah. uh, who's got to go before the court and you can uh, make the referral to KISP. Uh, your, a lawyer can make the referral to KISP. The magistrate might go, this person needs to be referred to KISP. Uh, so the refer, it, it, it's not a limited referral base at all. And we do actually get, those of us, the, the professionals out there who know about us, do a lot of the internal refer, do, do a lot of the referrals. So it's just covered by Melbourne, Sunshine. Melbourne, Sunshine and La Trobe Valley have got the full bells and whistles. Yep. But every court has access to some programmatic response. What we're trying to do is we're trying to convince government to, um, through ICE money, through family violence money, uh, and through uh, just a general expansion of therapeutic justice, which was part of the Labor Party platform for the election last year, we're actually trying to get the money to go statewide. But we have got something called credit bail, which is a slightly less intense program that's available throughout the state. Right. Emma? I was going to say that do the offences have to happen within the sort of city of Melbourne and uh, surrounding areas? It, they to have be to come... for Melbourne magistrates? Well, when we say Melbourne, we go out as far as Hopper's Crossing just about. Okay. So because we've taken over half of Sunshine's work. So our catchment area is vast. Um, so, and in any event, Sunshine's got KISP as well. So the whole Melbourne, when I say Melbourne, we're going St Kilda. We, we go up to about St Kilda. We go uh, around to Colling, uh, Collingwood, except that there's, of course, the Neighbourhood Justice Centre. I haven't even talked about the Neighbourhood Justice Centre. But they do this sort of work with virtually every client that comes in. So if you've got... Uh, if you're dealing with somebody who's committed offences in or lives in... Fitzroy or Collingwood or Richmond, they qualify for the Neighbourhood Justice Centre. They get the full bells and whistles too. Um, so the Melbourne catchment area is vast uh, and it's always worth checking. Um, this area would be Heidelberg, but Heidelberg's currently closed, so you're probably coming to Melbourne as well. So uh, the... We, we would really like to be able to... Where I see the greatest need are the country areas and uh, uh, where I see the greatest disadvantage uh, and the most complex people are uh, 
the further out from Melbourne, the worse it is. So Swan Hill, Mildura, from my perspective, are the absolutely crying out for better services. So our whole court is geared towards uh, dealing with people with mental impairment, or we try very hard to, to make the place uh, a safe place. We actually, in our ARC list, the mental health list, which is the assessment and referral court, as they keep calling it, we actually have some people who just come in and sit in the court because they feel that it's safe. Um, Jess is agreeing. So some, sometimes people will just go, sometimes ARC participants come to court, that's not their court day, they just come in and sit in the court because it's a safe environment. And we're very, the whole court's oriented to try to be uh, a safe and, and provide a procedurally fair uh, atmosphere for the people who appear before us. It's a in this current climate, it's very difficult because the court has taken over half of Sunshine's work. We've taken over nearly all of Heidelberg's court and we've burst Heidelberg court's work and we're bursting at the seams and there's a lot of tension in the court and, and a lot less time to deal with people the way we'd like to deal with them. So that's another part of therapeutic jurisprudence. It's finding the time to actually engage and in the olden days, the lawyers would hear from, sorry, the magistrate would just hear from the lawyer. So the lawyer would stand up and say, oh, Joe Bloggs is X, Y, Z, and you go, okay, sentence. Whereas these days, I'll actually engage with the offender eye to eye, ask them a few questions, try to remember. I'm dealing with thousands of people, but I try to remember uh, their mum and dad if they come. I try to remember um, what their dog's name is. I do try to engage on that sort of level so that they have a sense that this authority figure really is interested in, in me and what I'm doing and how I'm going. Would, is that a fair representation, Jess? Yeah, sometimes I think um, that the worrying thing is that the courts come such a long way in understanding how to communicate with people and, and deal with people in a therapeutic framework that then after they've been dealt with and they get back out in the Did you want to say something? I was just going to say it's a much more <coughs> relaxed um, atmosphere rather than the, the magistrate sitting up at, at their desk or whatever it's called. When I've been to, to, um, to watch, the magistrate actually puts the table straight across from the accused or the, the client and, and talk to them at the same level. And I think that's um, important. There's a bit of a difference. Um, between what we do in the ARC list and what we do in mainstream court. And I have to say, philosophically, what I've been trying to do and where I've been trying to steer the court is to have the KISP-type response available for every person who enters the court. 
whether they're an offender, whether they're a victim, whether they're involved in a family violence matter, whether they're involved in a victims of crime matter, I'm actually trying to have the same response. So we can't sit at the table for each one. So the way we're trying to design the programs, we can't yet because we don't have the money, but the magistrate does sit up on the bench, mostly, for KISP, and um, we conduct this sort of therapeutic environment with most of the people who appear before us. I'm not talking about somebody who has um, uh, driven while they're disqualified. But you're, um, these days, if you have an offender who's 20 and he's committed a uh, drink driving offence, the alarm bells go bang for me because these kids really value their licence and they know they've got to be zero, zero. And it triggers to me straight away there's some self-esteem or depression issue with this kid, usually the young men, that's causing them to drink drive. So even if they've got a low level drink drive, my alarm bells go straight away and I want to start to unpack it and work out why is this kid driving point over 0.05. But so in a perfect world, so I'll spend instead of five minutes with that kid on a just going, yeah, here the summary, um, impose a fine. I'll actually spend some time talking with that kid and his parents about what's going on in that kid's life. A lot of that's to do with life experience and we don't always have the time to unpack everything but I do try to unpack things as they become evident to me. Yesterday I had um, a woman somewhere from Africa, from somewhere in Africa who was applying for bail. She'd been assessed for KISP. She said she didn't need any services, so she didn't get KISP. And I, I spent some time talking to her because her offending was violent and she, some of it was alcohol-related, some of it was drug-related. Um, I suspected, you know, because I'm really... Dr Popovich has expertise in these things. I suspected there might have been a neurological deficit. So I'd spent some time talking to her. She was getting, she was a Monty for bail, that wasn't an issue, but I, I tried to talk her into going back to KISP, even though she'd said she didn't want it, for her on her, off her own bat while she's on bail to go to KISP and see whether they'll admit her onto the program. Because I thought we could refer her to Foundation House um, where she would get the appropriate psychological or psychiatric intervention, which was evident to me, it was screaming in my face. Uh, drug and alcohol, well, she says she hasn't got a How many people actually that you deal with actually admit they've got an alcohol problem? Well, yeah, hardly. Well, by the time they get to you, they do, but they don't, you know, I'll, I'll often say to somebody, well, they'll say, I don't drink much, I'll, I'll only have a drink on a Saturday night. Okay, well, what do you drink on a Saturday night? Oh, a slab. <laughs> oh, you don't think that's too much? No. So, you try to explain to them as best you can as not a professional about the effects of binge drinking. It's not, we can't do it very effectively. But there, it, it's hard to get people to actually acknowledge they've got a drinking problem from my perspective. Although it's often very evident that somebody's got a drinking problem. And we've, we try and steer them in the direction of getting treatment. We can't force them. And KISP is voluntary. ARC is certainly voluntary. We can't force anyone into doing anything like that. But I did want to spend a little bit of time talking to you about our family violence response. 
So how many of you deal with people with family violence issues or who have ABI as a result of family violence issues? Yeah. So we're very cognisant of the fact that people who come before us have cognitive impairments in that environment. And that's one of the reasons I really want to expand the KISS program so that people who are uh, involved in family violence can come to us as well. We've got a bid into, the gov into budget this year uh, for family violence applicants and respondents workers so that they can actually be embedded in the KISS program. So when, we're talking, when I talk about the KISS program, we're talking about like a holistic group of people who work in a team. Uh, and we'd like to have the applicant and respondent workers or men's and women's workers as part of that holistic environment so that we're actually offering all the services to everybody who needs them. We're going to design it in a way that we protect victims from having to come across the offenders or any offenders, but we're certainly looking at how we can reach a programmatic response to that as well. We also, uh, we're very caring around the victims of crime aspect and I'm hoping that you're all aware that uh, your um, clients who may have suffered uh, injuries from assaults um, are able to access victims of crime. We can't, we, the money's very tokenistic, so the actual awards are very small, but we can assist with a number of other things that they might need. Even things like getting a computer or helping them with courses or any aids. So that's just something I just wanted to alert you to. We also have something called a diversion program. Crikey's for someone who wasn't going to talk much. Um, a diversion program for people who have uh, low-level offending or generally first-time offenders. Um, and it's not used as effectively as it should be, but we can actually get them to undertake a much lower type of program uh, it might simply be if they've got an ABI, for example, that they continue on with their case manager for six months. That might be the only program condition. At the end of whatever the program is that we put in place for them, often it'll be a uh, fine or something, uh, not a fine, but a donation to a charity. Or uh, if they've got no, if they've got limited funds, we don't impose that. Uh, but we'll, or they've got to be of good behaviour for six months or something like that. And if they complete whatever that minuscule program condition is, the case is actually taken away from the court so that they have no, there's no finding of guilt and there's no uh, record of that ever happening. It's called a criminal justice diversion and it's just something that I really would like to put on your radar that if you've got a, a low level offender uh, who has uh, an ABI um, and is coming before the court find out whether they've actually accessed the diversion program. What do you reckon too, Jess? Not enough people use it, do they? Um, it, there's a, a disadvantage. The only disadvantage that I can see with it is that it's something that's gatekept by the, pol by the police. The police have to um, approve the diversion and that's been something that's um, uh, held people back in the past. But we've changed it so now the prosecutors the police prosecutors can agree to the diversion. But that is definitely something to bear in mind. But, I, but Yolanda, how do you get around 
We've have constantly worked on a bipartisan model. We always work with everybody, the Greens, Labor and Liberal, and we, uh, we spend a lot of time talking to them about what the various advantages are. Just to confuse you completely, there's something called justice reinvestment that's uh, started up, which is that it actually started in the far, far right in Texas, and it's Jeb Bush's little baby. But Jeb Bush and his cronies all decided that prisons were costing too much money and, gee, maybe we should put money into rehabilitation and maybe we could close the prisons. And guess what happened? They put money into rehabilitation. They've, they're on to closing their second prison in Texas. So the far right and the rest of us are sort of coalescing in our views. Uh, but we've been able through... Um, many evaluations to convince government that this is worth investing money in. Those of you who don't know, uh, prison can cost between 85000 and 100000 per prisoner per year. Our KISP program costs for four months under $5,000 if we give them the full bells and whistles. If, if we put in the, the neuropsych assessment, we're saying five grand for four months. So you guys do the maths. And then if you think about the fact that we're reducing crime, and we are, the ARC list uh, is undergoing an evaluation at the moment. They've worked out that there's, some of the offenders are, we're saving $3 million a year with some of our offenders. We've got some of our, we're, on the ARC list, we are dealing with the very, very pointy end. We didn't design the program like that. We wanted to have the whole pyramid, the whole spectrum of people with mental impairment, but we seem to be getting that very complex 3%. Yep? Do you have a feel for the percentage of people in the prison population in Victoria or Australia with an ABI? Well, um, in fact, Emma's husband, uh, Glenn, who works with us now, but he did the work with corrections, I think he found that there was a, it was about 65%. Uh, but we're just talking, just in terms of how much money we're saving, we've, we worked out with KISP back in 2009 when we did the evaluation that for every dollar we spent, we were saving the community $5. So that's the rationale we use to keep governments on board of every political persuasion. Um, sure. We do measure it. We're, we're doing longitudinal studies and uh, we've, uh, I don't know about useful member of the community, but in terms of the offending, we're able to monitor the offending. And uh, although some people re-offend, uh, the time between the offending is much longer and the nature of the offending, the qualitative and the quantitative nature of the offending uh, is significantly different. And that's part of what we're factoring into how much money we're saving the community. So we're very excited about that. I should talk to you very, very, very quickly about sentencing issues. Do you guys know, do you guys ever re prepare reports for court? Yes. So is that a question or a, yeah. I've, I've done this little chart and please don't um, give it to lawyers. 
because this is, this is my cheat sheet and why should I have done the work and then the lawyers benefit from it? But I thought you'd probably like to see what it is that how I have to apply the law when I'm sentencing somebody with mental impairment. I've uh, just done a survey, that big white folder there, that's all the cases that have been decided in the Court of Appeal using the Verdon's principles. I had a look through it last night so I could tell you uh, a specific instance that related to ABI, but uh, regrettably, no one's, there isn't a reported case about ABI. But there's some really interesting cases. Verdon's basically changed the sentencing landscape by saying that you don't have to have an access one mental illness to be able to have your sentence reduced on the basis of mental impairment. So mental impairment, even in, in the context of um, the really serious offending, has now, now actually does include things like ABI. So where I struggle is when I read your reports, I don't understand often how I can say that the person's offending behaviour is ameliorated by their cognitive impairment. So this little list um, tells you... Uh, so what happened with Verdon's is that the Court of Appeal did this judgement and they've set out um, six principles and I've, I've numbered them for you. And in, what happens in real life is that a, a lawyer will say, oh, Your Honour, um, our client uh, invokes the Verdon's principles, uh, in particular principles one, three and six, for example. So it's useful for you to know what it is that we are looking for if we want to ameliorate somebody's culpability. And then in terms of what the principles are, I've set out um, what the considerations are that we have to take into account. Um, we don't always have to establish a causal link, but a causal link is very useful. Um, this, I'm not going to go through all this, but it, it just makes basic common sense. So the condition, so for you guys, the mental the um, ABI, may reduce the moral culpability of the offending conduct as distinct from the offender's legal responsibility. Where that is so, the condition affects the punishment that is just in all the circumstances and denunciation is less likely to be a relevant sentencing object objective. So what you might... like, it, it, I'm not telling you how to suck eggs because you probably know that when I'm sentencing, I have to look at... Um, the rest of the community has to know that there's been a punishment imposed, that the conduct has been denounced. And I'm supposed to look at two other main things, which are general deterrence, so deterring other people from committing the same offence, and specific deterrence, that is deterring the offender from the specific type of offending. What Verdens is basically saying is that if you can establish somebody's uh, mental impairment has, has an effect on their conduct, that the, the, the punishment or the denunciation is less relevant uh, trying to deter the rest of the community is less relevant and trying to deter them might be less relevant too. Another area where I really struggle though with ABI is um, that area of lack of consequential thinking. That's something that's not often set out in reports. I would actually benefit from knowing whether the person's ABI or other mental impairment 
has an effect on their ability to think consequentially. I, I, can, I hate to tell this story, but I will. I'm haunted in my dreams by a family um, where I believe the mother probably has fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, so we've got grandma and grandpa, we've got mum. Mum has nine children, she's 32. Um, I'm now dealing with one of her children. Uh, so she's got, she's got three kids, two kids, two kids, five kids. So two kids are twins, they were born in um, youth training centre after she was doing time for a um, double culpable, you know, killing two people when she's drunk, an unlicensed 17 year old drunk behind the wheel of a car. So she has twins in Dame Phyllis Frost. It's not, oh, wasn't, it was, I don't know, yeah, it was Dame Phyllis Frost back in those days. So what are those kids' chances that they're not fetal alcohol syndrome? I'm now dealing with one of those. What, the, the female twin is a mother. So my 32-year-old mum is already a grandmother. She was a grandmother at 31. So she, her daughter and then her son, I'm now dealing with her son, who is just completely out of control. He's uh, just turned 14. So before he was 14, he, he wasn't able to be legally responsible for his actions. He was what they call Dolly Incapax. Now he is no longer Dolly Incapax because he's had a birthday. But he's still got the same deficits. How am I supposed to, how am I, what do I do with his offending behaviour, which is completely out of control and includes trashing YTC. When he's put into YTC, he trashes YTC. So the mum, who I've probably known now for seven or eight years, and when I say they haunt my dreams, you're getting an understanding of why they're haunting my dreams. Because I know that there's, the mum's now been doing jail time, quite a bit of jail time, so the nine kids have all been put into care. So she's got, the last five kids are very young, they're probably, I'd say they're under eight, five under eight, something like that. And because there's so many kids, they can't be put in kinship accommodation, so they're all spread to foster families all over the place. It's horrific. Um, because we jumped up and down really badly recently, we managed to get all the kids to visit mum uh, when she was in prison. Uh, and I've actually just released mum. mum I had mum in court a couple of weeks ago and I um, put her on a community corrections order, but I have very little confidence that she's going to be able to comply. She's never been able to comply before. But over the journey, and it's, it's been a long and torturous journey, I've, I impose all the therapeutic orders, but she's been very resistant to any form of assistance or any form of treatment. And she's always been worried that DHS are going to take the kids. So she's never actually engaged with anything that we've put in place for her. And of course, she's ended up in jail. And we've done everything to try to keep her out of jail. But her lack of consequential thinking, if you don't do X, you're gonna to go to jail. If you do Y, you're gonna to go to jail. But she can't help herself. If she goes past a counter that's got a charity tin, she'll manipulate the chain, take, take the charity tin. She can't help herself. Uh, it's 
Her modus operandi is generally taking charity tins. It's also going into like going to get assistance, material aid in churches, and then stealing the ladies' handbags and all the things that go with that. She just has no ability to think consequentially. She's had several neuropsych assessments and her brain function is decreasing. And that's really as a result, probably because of the more beatings that she's had from her partner and also from the drugs and the alcohol that she's using. And she's spent about the last four months in custody and she was the best I'd ever seen her, which is the other indictment. But in none of the, in, when I say none, of the two neuropsych assessments that we've had uh, relating to her, the neuropsych hasn't actually commented on her lack of consequential thinking, which for me is the thing that stands out. Now, I don't know, is that something you guys can talk about or you do? Yes. Right. You're not. Who are you? <laughs> ah. Okay. All right. Okay. Are you saying perhaps we need to be more explicit in the terminology we're using? Yep. Just needs to be used terms. Perhaps because because like we're not neuropsychs. So it would be useful to us. Perhaps if you could spell it out a bit better. And, uh, yeah, well, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Because you're... Uh, you're the lawyer always says, tone it down. Oh, well. Um, I've mm. been asked to take out paragraphs. Have you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't realise, uh, Dr Vowles, I would not have um, mentioned that story <laughs> if I'd known you were here. What also makes my heart bleed is the 17, when 17 driving drunk and killed the two friends, which is the initial incident. And it's... You can see the whole thing, but it's a total tragedy for generation after generation, and when, how can it stop? Oh, and you can see it now because I can see the son, T, is now doing, is engaging in the most destructive behaviour that's going to see him in many, many, doing many, many years of jail. And, but we haven't got a neuropsych assessment on him. We've had clinic reports. But anyway, it's just a tragic story. I do, though, have one cautionary tale. So while I find this, I should have had it ready for you. I wanted to read it to you. Um, you shouldn't get too much into the fray um, because you could find yourself getting very embarrassed by the judges. Um, there's a case uh, that went before the Court of Appeal where the person, the psychologist, got completely um, touched up by the Court of Appeal. <sighs> I can't find it now, can I? Um, but if I can, I'll try and find this passage because you'll like it. But uh, are there any other questions just while I'm looking for Could that? Can you just talk a little bit more generally about um, some of the things as neuropsychologists preparing a report. Um, okay. I mean, you mentioned about consequential thinking. Some of the things that, when you've read a report, said, oh, this is a great report, really helpful. What are the things that you've noticed in that? Or, and the converse, when perhaps um, report things to avoid in reports. I find, I know you have to talk about your testing, but I actually find the testing 
I skim over it, to be completely truthful, because I don't know what, I mean, the Winchler blah blah test, <laughs> what, what the is that? Um, and everybody seems to refer to it. Uh, and I know you have to, I know you have to, but could you put it in an addendum so I don't actually have to even skim over it? Um, I know you have to do the testing because that's your, the basis of what your opinions are, but perhaps a little less discourse on those and uh, more description about how uh, the uh, impairment affects the person's reasoning. And I know uh, Tom told me I had to come up with, um, Tom said, anecdotes, they like anecdotes, and I haven't been great with the anecdotes today. But, um, uh, and I've, I've used one I shouldn't have used now. So, uh, some sort of examples, maybe, so that the, so that the uh, and again, you're dealing with a range of people, uh, and you're dealing with the, sorry, when I say people, you're dealing with a range of judicial officers. So, some, Jess is nodding her head, you'll have some who are sort of aware, like me and, and my buddies, and then you'll have some who don't really give a rats. Um, thankfully, they're at the very lower end uh, of the spectrum, and we don't have many of them, do we, Jess? A few. Um, a few dinosaurs, but mainly really enlightened people like myself. But you'd, so you're dealing with a range of people with a range of knowledge and a, a range of life experience. So it's about how to convince us so that we understand what that person's impairment is actually, what that actually means to their behaviour, how, how it affects their behaviour, how it affects their ability to... So I know that you, you say things like, oh, there's a loss of executive function. Well, what the, does that mean? I know what that meant when my mother had vascular dementia because I could see it, um, but I don't know what that means for the offender who is before me. Is that helpful? And you sort of talked about examples. Are you sort of saying, like, are you asking us to sort of hypothesise and say if a person in a, this kind of situation they'd have difficulties with this? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Perfect. <coughs> Absolutely perfect. So uh, it's like, well, again, I don't like to talk, I shouldn't be talking about my Mildura example, but um, she just doesn't think. If, you, if she sees a charity tin, she just takes it. She doesn't think all she can go all she thinks about is yeah beauty I can buy another cone or whatever or um, she doesn't think oh I'm going to breach my community corrections order or I'm going to do another five days in in the cells she just doesn't it doesn't compute uh, it's I'm not does that is that helpful it, what anything else I can help with in terms of report writing the, what I, I really like the neuropsych reports. You, you do better reports than most psychologists because you, at the end you always tell us how to talk to people and I find that really useful, although I suspect the, the judges in the Court of Appeal wouldn't find that as useful because they're actually dealing in legal concepts. I'm actually dealing with, with the person and what's the best sentence to impose for that person. Um, Oh, no, I wish I could find this. The implications of the impairment on their capacity to deal with a, a, 
sentence. Absolutely important. And if you have a look at the Verdon's chart, you'll find that I think it's number six. Uh, so, yeah. so the Court of Appeal says where there is a serious risk of imprisonment having a significant adverse effect on the offender's mental health, this will be a, a factor tending to mitigate punishment. Now, again, I'm talking to neuropsychs mainly. Am I talking to any ordinary psychs? So I don't want to offend anyone. Um, if, I, if I see the term adjustment disorder one more time for a person who's in prison, I'm going to slap whoever the author is of that report. Of course, people have adjustment disorders in custody because they've got to adjust to being in custody. I don't need to be told. And it's, it might be in DCM five, whatever we're up to, but guess the care factor that they're finding it hard in prison. Um, the counterfeiter I had yesterday with the, who was found with 5,600 bucks in counterfeit $50 notes, guess the care factor that he's got an adjustment disorder in, the, in custody. But if they have a memory disorder and they're impulsive, then you can say this man won't remember to go to the right place and he'll get into trouble. Yes. Go. This man will fire up when one of the other prisoners gets at him and therefore he's more likely to, yes. to sin in jail. Exactly. And he's going to be in his own worst yes. interest. Absolutely. That, that, absolutely. And those are the things that I would have thought be useful to do. Yes, those things are very useful. Yep. Just taking it back to that prison, I've had this all with a couple of clients through the route for restorative justice program in the route. Yep. Okay. And this is why I was trying to avoid talking about corrections orders. <laughs> I'm trying to work out how to say this without really digging. And that's why with our programs, we um, have the automated SMSs, uh, we do follow-up phone calls, we give them diaries. We teach them how to use diaries. We try to teach them. We do the things that you tell us to do about reminding them about diaries. And actually, they like diaries because um, it you know makes them feel like an important person. That I've got things I have to I have to look in my diary to see what I've got to do today. So, uh, beg your pardon. A lot of them are literate. Yeah. Assuming that these people can yep. read and write. Yeah. No, we do have people who don't read and write, but we do ring them. We ring. We follow up. We're very cognizant of uh, how to manage that aspect of the mental impairment. That's one thing we do reasonably well. Corrections orders. Okay, the difference between corrections and KISP. Corrections orders are punitive orders. It's the end of the sentencing process. Now, the most recent, again, Court of Appeal, the be-all and end-all, they tell us how to live our lives, but the Court of Appeal has now put in what they call a guideline judgment first ever in Victoria guideline judgment of Bolton, B-O-U-L-T-O-N, which has now changed the whole, la whole sentencing landscape. So you asked before about the punitive aspects of the legislation that was brought in, which we are really feeling at the moment. Bolton has tipped that over like um, a house of cards. 
Bolton says that even for the most serious offences now, you've got to look at imprisonment as the very last resort and uh, so even very serious offenders are now qualifying as by the, in terms of the Court of Appeal as being people who should be assessed for community corrections orders. So what does a community corrections order offer that's different to KISP? Community corrections have, a, uh, have an officer who's assigned to an offender. The officer might have a workload of between 30 and 40 offenders that de they're dealing with of varying uh, severity. Our KISP officers have 15, a caseload of 15. Um, the corrections officers often engage simply in a tick and flick because they don't have time to engage on a one-on-one -on -one, uh, with the offender. What the offender is often doing on a community corrections order with their corrections officer is simply turning up to their appointment and that discharges their obligation. If they're monitored intensely, and again, we talked, Dr. Vales, in terms of what the issue that you raised, they're actually given workbooks and they go through the workbook uh, and that's part of their intensive therapy under a corrections order. Corrections also have brokerage funds and they refer to uh, drug and alcohol uh, services. But if an offender is referred to a, um, a road trauma awareness course or to a men's behaviour change program or to an anger management program, they have to pay for it themselves. So, in, and if they don't go, they are, um, uh, that's seen to be in breach of the order. In terms of mental health issues or mental impairment issues, there's no magic about corrections orders at all. All they do is refer to, for a mental health care plan. They have no other access other than perhaps for referral to forensic care for the problem behaviours clinic, which is often what the magistrate tries to put in place. There is no psychiatric, ABI, um, psychological component to anything on a corrections order. So you go, that's why a lot of the time at the sentencing phase, I'll actually put somebody on bail for four months on the KISS program to get them stable enough and functioning enough to then be able to move to a corrections order. Yep? And, and, and what happens with, in my, the way I work with those people is if I know that they're engaged with a professional like you, I'll make it part of their order and I'll also, we can judicially monitor even on a corrections order. So I'll get them to come back maybe every three months so that I can see that they're complying with that component of the order and also so that I can see that corrections are enforcing compliance with that aspect of the order. 
Is anyone here from Forensic Care? Okay, so I love you all, as you know. But um, the yeah, but what, what what I do with Forensic Care, if I'm going to be putting somebody on a corrections order, uh, and I've worked this through with Tom Dalton and Danny Sullivan, is I actually I arrange the Forensic Care assessment first and I, with the recommendation for consideration of the Problem Behaviours Clinic, and then I present that to a pack, as a package to corrections and say, I've had the person assessed, here's the psych report from Forensic Care, person is recommended for the Problem Behaviours Clinic. But I still get the person to come back after three months to make sure that corrections have made that linkage because they often don't. So I think you've had much better experience with corrections than many other people. Which area are you dealing with predominantly? Uh, I'm a doctor. I've been in general practice for years. I was in general practice in Fitzroy for nearly 20 years. Right. So I've had lots of... Okay. Years. Well, often I'll, on an adjourned undertaking, on a promise to be of good behaviour, I will impose a condition that X complies with all treatment um, recommendations of Dr blah blah or her nominee uh, including taking pharmacotherapy as prescribed. So I'll make that a condition. A lot of the doctors think that I'm putting the pressure on the doctor to um, comply with the order. I'm not. It's an, an order on the offender to comply and with that aspect. Yep. Yep. But that's on a, usually on a good behaviour bond or adjourned undertaking rather than on a corrections order. Um, I did forget to say, sorry, very, very quickly, I did forget to say that on a corrections order we can impose justice plans. And so often I will, um, and I find that works really effectively on a corrections order for people with intellectual disability. I'll refer them for a justice plan first. I'll get the IDS assessment, the justice plan, and then make that part of the corrections order. And then I'll... Inf I tr as you can hear, I actually manage, a you know, 100 or 200 offenders at any one time because I do want to make sure that everything I put in place actually works. So I regrettably have huge volumes of people that keep coming back to me. But, um, you know, so I make a rod from my own back. But I think it actually does uh, work and it does help to get those orders to work. Sorry, I interrupted you. I was you. just going to say, I think we see, like, so during the... Um, <laughs> uh, which is to say, like, if, so if we have people coming in, so we, when we have one issue, which is the no-shows, that people just don't turn up for their things, and that's just yep. life. But, you know, if we're doing a report which is going directly to you into the courts, or we're doing one which is coming through corrections yep. while they're on bail, or mostly because they're on a, um, a corrections order, I think there is still that really therapeutic thing, because people come in, they're quite belligerent, they're all like, what the hell am I even doing here? This is mental health, I don't have a mental health problem. And all that's where you can sit there and say, look, we are here and you are consenting to this. And if you don't consent, that's fine. You can walk out. That's not a problem. I'm going to have to tell the court. I'm going to have to tell your corrections officer. This is this has consequences for your future, whether or not it's going to be a breach or whether or not the court, you know, the magistrate or the judge is going to read this and see that you're not really invested in, in the process that we're using to try and help you stop offending. And I, I, I have never had anyone walk out after that process, even though they all say that they're going to in the first couple of minutes of it. Yeah. So I think once they're in the door and once you can have that kind of, um, the role of the judici judiciary in kind of promoting that adherence to things is so helpful. Okay. Mm. Yep. I'm dying to know what, the, what not to say. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking for it. Um, 
I'm going to stop in a minute, but is there anything that, uh, that we haven't talked about or is there anything that you'd like me to, um, tell, to direct you towards in terms of... Um, if, if you go on the Melbourne Magist sorry, if you go on the Victoria Victorian Magistrates Court website, you'll find um, details about the KISP program and ARC, and it has, runs through the full eligibility criteria. And uh, also, what I forgot to mention about ARC is that we can actually, um, uh, if somebody's completed the ARC program, we can actually dismiss their charges. So that's another really, as, as similar to our diversion, it's as if it never came before the court. So it's um, also another useful thing. Now, wish I could find this. I just, I found it for the, the, the President of the Court of Appeal came and talked to us about Verdon's recently and he, um, he was referring to this and couldn't find it uh, and I found it for him. And now I can't find it. But the, what happened was that, the, just in case I don't find it, that the psychologist actually started applying Verdon's and said, oh, um, the, these limbs of Verdon's apply and uh, this is how Your Honour should think about um, applying them. So, yeah, don't do that. I'll find it, yeah. I'll find it and uh, send it to Tom or to Joe. I, well, I can't believe I can't find it because I did find it for the judge. Burdens. I wrote it down. I'm pretty sure it's a matter. I'm pretty sure it's a, a decision of called Carroll, which is um, a court of appeal decision back from two. Oh no, it was a recent one. This one's 2010, so I'm looking at the wrong thing. Um, any other? Quick questions before I leave you to it. Um, so, just in terms of, did you find is this helpful to you? This little burden. I now I find this really helpful because now when people say burdens, I just read, I just read it out and read you know which considerations I've taken into account. And I just it's really easy. It's a nice little chart. That's why I don't want the lawyers to know about this. They've got to do their own work, not rely on Miss Popovich to do the work for them, which is what they generally do, except for you, of course, Jess. Um, Oh, damn, why can't I find this? Um, As people who um, perhaps are not always directly related in the, in the justice system, so we're sort of yep. a lot of us, the therapists sort of more early than that, or, or sort of with people who are in less trouble, um, <coughs> not sure how long for, but yep. um, what are some of the things that we could do just for general community members that this approach in the legal system such so, you know, apart from say writing to our local minister or whatever, but can you think of anything that we can do to support this kind of approach? Of the uh, uh, it, in terms of so therapeutic justice approach. I think I think it really is worth uh, approaches to your local member. Okay. Um, we do work, we try to get parliamentarians in to see our programs and that it has a huge effect. Last week we had them come and have a look at what we do with family violence. If we can actually, and we've had real trouble getting the parliamentary people to come and see ARC and we've, we're about to, the fun, we lose funding on the 
30th of June and we've got the bid in to expand that. We can't seem to get the, the ministers to come and have a look. So if you've but writing to health ministers and that type of thing about how it's helped your clients uh, and how you can see it saving the community money would be a huge um, of huge assistance. What I will do, Tom, is I'll, I'll get that passage and I'll send it to Joe. Yeah. And what I'll send to Joe is I'll send you the extracts from the, um, uh, the website and I'll send you the KISP assessment. Um, evaluation and when we get the ARC evaluation I'll send you that as well. Um, ARC regrettably we uh, have limited numbers and we always have a long waiting list but if you've got a client who you think would really benefit from a 12 month <coughs> intensive program uh, we'd love to have you refer them to us if they're an offender. Um, Anything else just before I sign off? Yeah. So oh, sorry. Too much. Mentioning about how you enjoy when in reports there's directions for how to communicate best with things, but you also mentioned that in maybe the higher courts the restrictions are a little bit different because of the. I think you mentioned something about the legal concepts. Well, but the the, the punter's not even in court in the court of appeal. Oh, okay. So that you, um, I did a I did some legal education recently, and we had to do had to deliver a sentence orally, and you know which is like bread and butter to us because that's what we do all the time and we were videotaped and then it was shown to the other people in our group and we had court of appeal judges supreme court judges county court judges and so i'm uh, sentencing you um for you your deplorable behavior but i can understand how it occurred and the context in which it occurred and these are the signals you should be looking for and on this occasion this is the sentence i impose and the, the Supreme Court judge, one of the really good ones, I can't name names, but he said, do you always talk to the offender? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the difference. We, we talk, we, in fact, that's a relatively new phenomenon. In the past, people didn't talk to the offender and some of my colleagues don't talk to the offender, but I will always address everything to the offender. So when I have to deliver, like, things I struggle with are how to deliver bad news. I'm not good at that. Sorry, no, you're not getting bail today. Yeah. So I, have to, I will often deliver the bad news straight up and then go through my answers because I know they are only hearing the words they want to hear. And we spend a lot of time on learning communication skills and motivational skills, although I'm not, I can't pretend to be an expert at it. But the higher courts, Jess, do they ever talk to the offender? I think it's really helpful, yeah. but I've got 114 colleagues, and there's probably, if we count in the count in all the judges, we're probably talking about close to 300 judicial officers. Mm -hmm. They're all different people. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. 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 Ye
Yeah. <laughs> Did you have a question? No no? no. no, no. Okay, I better stop it now. Sorry, everyone, rabbiting. Somebody who wasn't going to talk, talk the legs off a chair. I think um, it's a real sign that um, a good speaker leaves you with things that you still want to know, and I think Ellen has done a fantastic oh. job of that. Um, I think we'd love to have you back again at some stage. Sure. Um, I think the, the interactions today have been fantastic. So thanks so much for giving us your time, Ellen. Oh, you're very welcome. I think invite you all to. I'll come back anytime.